Our sermon passage this week is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the eleven... Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of of the age. I want to begin with a little experiment, and this may sound a little odd, but stick with me. What do you hear when I say this? Rise up lights. Rise up lights. Now, if you're like me, and you grew up in America, and maybe from uh, kind of any region, what you're hearing is me, an American, say, with my American accent, Rise up, lights. So rise up, like getting up, lights, like a lamp. Rise up, lights. But that sound of those, that phrase, rise up, lights, in an American accent is exactly the same sound as someone saying razor blades with an Australian accent. I'm going to say it again, but this time listen for razor blades in an Australian accent. Rise up, lights. Rise up lights, right? It's you can hear it now. You maybe can't hear rise up lights anymore. Rise up lights. What's going on? Those exactly same. Those are the exactly same sounds, but your brain is processing it differently because of what I said to expect. What we hear depends on our perspective. What we're expecting to hear, in a sense. In other words, our perspective shifts the very words that our brain processes. Now today is Easter. It's the day that Christians around the world are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And for some of us, this is another day on the calendar. Today is Sunday, and we're going to have lunch with our family afterward. There's going to be Easter egg hunt, and uh, maybe you're going to eat a ham, and you know, those things are, <laughs> those things are great. Um, but the resurrection of Jesus is more than just another good reason to take a day off work or to uh, have a barbecue. I'm convinced that the resurrection of Jesus 
is a world-changing, perspective-shifting event that transforms the way we see God, the way we see others, the way we see ourselves. In other words, it's it, the resurrection of Jesus puts a new accent on the entire world around us. It transforms and changes everything. And what I'd like to do this morning is we've already read Matthew 28. I want to think about um, the resurrection account that's here in the gospel, gospel of Matthew and regain together our equilibrium, to take a good news, uh, a good new look at the good news of Jesus in a world that screams at us to believe lesser things. And let's begin, I'm going to break it up into a couple of sections, by looking at the tomb, the tomb. So just before our passage in, uh, in Matthew 27, when it talks about Jesus passing away and what they did with his body after he died, it begins, uh, Matthew 27 begins in a place of incredible despair. Incredible despair. Jesus has been stripped of every shred of worldly dignity. He's been betrayed, he's been left, he's been forsaken from people at the highest level of society to the very lowest. He's been betrayed by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, arrested by a mob, on trial before a pilot, rejected by the crowd, mocked and beaten by the soldiers who take his clothes, mocked by chief priests and teachers of the law, mocked by passersby, mocked by rebels being crucified alongside him. What we see, if you read through, is this progressive and amplifying stripping away with shame upon shame being tossed upon Jesus. It's a progressive stripping away that is breathtaking and, and horrible in its scope. And what's going on is the Gospel of Matthew is making very clear to us that this is supposed to be the end. This is supposed to be the closed door on this whole Jesus thing. The political leaders, the religious leaders, the crowd, the highest, lowest society, they've all combined, in a sense, to make sure that this Jesus stuff stops before it gets out of hand. And so they kill him. They crucify him on a cross, and they put him where? In a tomb. And if you look at Matthew 27, you'll see there's lots of details that we get about the tomb. It's not just any tomb. It's a brand new tomb tomb. This is new construction. There's no flaws. This is new construction. Uh, it's carved out of a rock. So there's no cracks. There's no outside doors. This is a solid rock that's been carved into to make this new tomb. And a stone is rolled in front of the opening. It is sealed off. The body of Jesus is placed in this tomb with no cracks, this new tomb, and sealed off to trap whatever he's about inside. As we see, Pilate has had the stone sealed, if you look at verse 66 of chapter 27. And what the seal was, with this, it was like this uh, clay-like substance. It would seal the openings. Um, and what they would do then is they would take the imperial seal, like the king's ring, and they would seal that into the clay as kind of like a, a proof that it had not been opened later on. And to break that seal was to incur the, the wrath of the state. And not only that, not only was it a new tomb, not only was it sealed off, we see that they put a guard uh, of multiple soldiers to watch the tomb. As Pilate says in verse uh, 65 of chapter 27, they have, quote, made it as secure as you know how. 
They've made it absolutely as secure as they could. They put their best minds, put uh, their best work into this, making sure Jesus is stripped away, is killed, and put away, is out of the way. And that brings us to our second section. The first is the tomb. You know, this is the end. Second is the confusion. And so Jesus is dead, and the hopes of his disciples seem to be in the tomb alongside him. And no one knows what to do. His disciples go into hiding. It says a man named Joseph of Arimathea asked for his body so he can go put it in a tomb. Joseph doesn't know what to do, so he's, I guess, give me his body. Uh, And look at verse 1, which I read just a moment ago. It says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to, quote, look at the tomb. They don't know what to do in their grief, so they just go to look at the tomb. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've experienced the overwhelming confusion of grief. You have no idea what to do. And so like the disciples, you run. Or like Joseph, you make yourself busy doing what you can to help other people. Or like the two Marys here, you just stare at your grief. But Jesus is... uh, Jesus is dead. And so the tomb, the end, has happened. The confusion has come. Um, And if you're a student of history, you would think, reading this, that this is kind of the natural aftermath of the end of this story, this confusion. Because this kind of thing has happened before, right? A great person gains a following. They're crushed beneath beneath the weight of power, and their followers are left in grief and confusion. But Jesus is more than just another failed leader in a long line of failed leaders. He didn't just come to inspire us to be better versions of ourselves. He did not come with just good advice on how to be good people in this world. He came to break the bonds that hold us bound in this world. He came to break the powers of sin and death and to free us. He came not just with good advice, but with good news that He is God and He can forgive sins. And in His death, In his death, death is swallowed up. Jesus came to drink the dregs of the bitter cup of sin and death to the very bottom so that we don't have to. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. So we have the tomb. We have the confusion that's come after the tomb, and that brings us to our third section, the dawn. The dawn. Chapter 28 begins, as it says, at the dawn of the first day. The first day. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are there at at dawn and they don't know why. Maybe they can't sleep. As Matthew says, they went to look at the tomb. The two Marys are there to grieve the loss of their teacher, of their friend, of their Lord. They're uh, mourning the loss of maybe the only man who ever looked them in the eyes and took them seriously. And these women who came to look at their grief, to look at the tomb, they become what? The first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They become the first eyewitnesses of a new creation dawning in this world. And what we see here is that the best planning by all the best minds in the world, all the best making this tomb as secure as you know how, is undone in a moment. All this work to seal Jesus away, to make sure that whatever he's about is is not in the way anymore, it's all undone in a moment. Because the old creation... And it's death, it's violence, it's false power. The tomb, the tomb, no matter how secure and guarded it may be, the tomb cannot hold the glory of the work that God is doing 
And so in verse 2, what do we see? The angel descends to roll the stone away, and he cannot be stopped by the guards. What do these big strong guards with their armor and their weapons do? They respond in fear, and they're frozen in their fright. (laughs) The seal on the tomb doesn't stop the angel. He doesn't fear the power of the insignia that's pressed into the clay. And what does he do? He rolls the stone back, and he sits on it. The stone intended to seal up Jesus and everything he meant into this small tomb becomes a chair. So the two women, what do they do? They've just seen this incredible, awesome display of power. And they have to wonder, you know, if a guard of Roman soldiers and a sealed stone cannot stop this angel, what are two grieving women going to do? They must have been terrified. And so in verse 5, the angel turns to them and says what? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What a remarkable thing to say. And why shouldn't they be afraid? Look at verse 6. Jesus, who you're looking for, who's been crucified, is not here. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. And he is not just risen from the dead so he can use his power against them, but he has risen from the dead for them. In fact, His very rising from the dead is Jesus using his power to defeat the enemies that stood against these women. They're looking for Jesus in this tomb that is now open to the world. The stone's been rolled away. The tomb has been opened and emptied, but Jesus cannot be found there. And what are they commanded to do? To go and tell the scattered disciples of Jesus. But they leave. Look at verse verse 8. And this is profound. They leave afraid but filled with joy. Afraid but filled with joy. And on the way, they're greeted by the risen Jesus himself. Now, our translation, the one I just read, it says that Jesus says greetings to them. But that's a far less powerful word than what's actually used. The Greek word that's behind greetings here, it's connected with the word grace. And I think it's better translated rejoice. Jesus meets them along the way and he's not just saying hi, he's saying grace has come, rejoice. He's telling them in case they were unsure that his resurrection is for them. He's telling them and and us through this passage the defining word of his new creation, the defining word from God for us, for them, is grace. They've underst- and they understood he wasn't just saying hi because they respond by clasping his feet and worshiping him. And that has to be <laughs> a natural reaction, right? To seeing the, the power of the risen Jesus declaring grace to them. They've just realized the greatest truth of their lives, the one that they had followed and trusted, has in fact risen from the dead victorious over the powers that hold them bound and they grab a hold of him. They grab a hold of him. And maybe they think, maybe they grab a hold of him because they think if they don't, he's going to disappear. Maybe they're uh, afraid that if they don't grab a hold of him, that it might be too good to be true, that we better keep him close. But in the dawn of the new creation, their despair at the loss of the only thing they ever believed in is turned into joy Their fear is turned into joy mixed with fear. 
but joy nonetheless. And the good news of Jesus' gracious hello is uttered to them, which leads me to my last point, the transformation. Because the resurrection wasn't just Jesus showing off. We can sometimes think of it that way, that this is uh, Jesus is almost like a magician and this is the last magic trick, the really impressive one at the end of the show. But the fact is, if you read through this passage, that nothing remains unchanged after the resurrection of Jesus. We've already mentioned the stone in front of the tomb became a chair. But we see here also that the tomb that he rested in becomes the womb of the new creation of God. And what happens? These forgotten women who came simply to observe their grief, they become the first preachers of the resurrection. The first people tasked with announcing that Jesus is alive and that changes everything. And the disciples who aren't here because they fled to save their own lives, the disciples who fled to save their own hides become witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we are hearing this gospel right now because of their faithful witness, because they traveled throughout their known world planting churches. They were transformed by the resurrection. And these are just the things in our passage this morning. Um, In just one passage from Isaiah 25 in the Old Testament, Isaiah prophesies that the mountain of Jerusalem, which at the time he spoke in the prophecy, was under great danger, besieged by armies far stronger than they. He tells them that God is going to take that mountain of fear and turn it into a mountain of joy, a place where death is literally swallowed up. That's what happens here. And the mountain of fear becomes the mountain of joy. It's transformed into a place of the great banquet of God for all people. And to fast forward, because we could go through all the things that are absolutely changed and transformed by the resurrection of Jesus, but fast forward to the end. In Revelation 21, the end of this story, the end of God's redemptive work, Jesus tells us that he is making all things new. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Nothing remains unchanged, and that includes me, and that includes you. I mentioned at the very beginning of this sermon that the resurrection changes the way we see God, the way we see ourselves, and the way we see the world around us. So let's talk about that a little bit. What does it mean for us to say that the resurrection changes the way that we see or the way that we approach God? Well, in the resurrection of Jesus, what do we see? We see God's intention for us. Lest we have any doubt of what God intends for us, we can see with clarity His intentions for us in the resurrection of Jesus. We see that God does not intend to curse us or to leave us in the death that comes from sin, but that His intent is to bless us, to forgive our sins, to cleanse us completely, and to give us a hope that can transcend the ups and downs to life because it transcended the death crucifixion of Jesus. Look at the end of chapter 28. Jesus says that all authority has been given to him. And what does Jesus do with that authority given to him? Does he seek revenge on his disciples who had abandoned him in the hour of his greatest need? No. He speaks with that authority to make them witnesses to the end of the earth, that people of all nations could come and find peace with God through the work of Jesus. The disciples need not fear Jesus, though they had abandoned him. They can cast themselves upon the sure grace that he has for them and know they're going to find sure fitting there. Why? Because of his resurrection. They can go forwards as witnesses to his resurrection and know that he is with them even until the end of all things. His resurrection has changed 
uh, everything, change the way they see God. Now, maybe you're here listening to this this morning or whenever you're listening to this, and when you think of the resurrection of Jesus, all you can think of um, is fear. Surely, one with the power to conquer death will not deal lightly with me. One with the power to conquer death is going to come for me because I have a lot of sin. I've done a lot of terrible things, maybe even this week. The scripture says that Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. So that we who should be condemned for our sins, we find ourselves righteous before God as a gift. Jesus was raised not for our condemnation, but so that we could come to him and be vindicated before God, be forgiven of sins and counted righteous in his sight. That is profound, incredible good news right here for us in the resurrection of Jesus. As one preacher said, it's just as impossible for that anyone for whom Christ rose from the dead should fail to receive the righteousness of God as it is that God should undo the resurrection of Christ itself. Consequently, knowing ourselves one with Christ, we find in the resurrection the strongest possible assurance of pardon and peace. When Christ rose on Easter morning, he left behind him in the depths of the grave every one of our sins There they remain, buried from the sight of God so completely that even in the day of judgment, they will not be able to rise up against us anymore. Amen. This is how the resurrection of Jesus changes the way we see God. God is not some distant tyrant wanting to squash us. God, our God, is our loving Father who would go to this depth to pursue us. The resurrection also changes the way we see other people. Um, Because of the resurrection, we can be be convinced of this, that there are none outside the possibility of being changed by him. If the tomb of his death can become the womb of new creation dawning into this world, then even the worst of sinners can be changed into someone who loves God and loves other people. The resurrection of Jesus can become a place of profound hope. Hope for others and hope for ourselves. So we don't have to live in fear in this world. Look again at the end of chapter 28. The disciples who were so afraid of the consequences of following Jesus that they had fled before he was crucified and deserted him are now regathered around him. They're given the assurance of his presence with them and told to make disciples of all nations, to take this good news of his resurrection all over the world. They who were so afraid of the power of this world that they fled now become the people who go into that world that was so terrifying, announcing that Jesus, not Caesar, Jesus, not this president or this king, Jesus is Lord. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus transformed how they saw other people. Think about it. The religious and political leaders who were so powerful just a few days before when they crucified Jesus are just as powerful after the resurrection of Jesus in a sense. They can do exactly the same harmful things to the disciples that they could before. And in fact, if we keep reading in Scripture and in church history, we find out that that's true, that these disciples that heard Jesus assure them of his presence with them became martyrs. They were killed for their faith. But they could face that danger and they could face that fear. Why? Because the resurrection had changed everything. They knew they could walk in and face that false power without fear. 
because they were bringing a grace that could transform, and it did transform. Again, the ripples, the echoes of their preaching resound even today. They could preach good news because the resurrection of Jesus became the lens through which they saw the world. And I wonder to think how it could change us as well. How could uh, the resurrection of Jesus being the lens through which we see everything change our relationships? How would the way we thought about the world change if we started seeing the people around us through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus? I don't know. I mean, there's probably a hundred ways it could change. But the invitation to us this morning is to take that step into it, to lean in to seeing the world through the possibility of hope in the resurrection of Jesus. But not only does the resurrection of Jesus give us a a new lens on seeing God and seeing others, it also changes the way we see ourselves. Because when we come to Jesus in faith, Scripture says we become new new creatures, new creations, that we're made alive spiritually. And in this way, we become witnesses of the new creation that that began in the empty tomb of Jesus. Not because we were there with the two Marys, but because God used their faithful witness and the reverberations of Jesus' victory have spread to us even here 2,000 years and 6,098 miles away. I did the math. I looked it up on Google. So if you still have fear, take heart. So did the two Marys here who had just seen the resurrection of Jesus with their own eyes. They had joy mixed with fear. And Jesus told, uh, Jesus greeted them in his grace and he sent them, even in their fear, mixed with joy. He sent them to be the announcers of his resurrection. If you still have doubts, be encouraged. So did some of the disciples who heard Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, with their own ears and saw him with their own eyes. Look at verse 17. It says that some, that, that they worshipped him, but some doubted. All the doubts didn't roll away, even with him in front of their face. Jesus told them, even so, even with those doubts, he would be with them. And he entrusted to them the mission of being his ambassadors in this world. Jesus doesn't ask us to minimize our pain or our fear or our doubts this morning. And to be honest, I can't, I can't promise you answers to every question you may have or a blueprint or of exactly how you, everything you've experienced in your life works out to God's glory and you're good. I can't do that. But I can promise you this in Jesus, in the resurrected Jesus. You'll find love, love unspeakable, love unsearchable, love unending. And that same power that turned a tomb of endings into the womb of the new creation can transform our pains, can transform our fears, can transform our doubts into a beautiful testimony of God's compassion and grace. So this morning, hear the greeting of Jesus that he gave to those two Marys, the same greeting that he gave 2,000 years ago. Greetings, not just greetings, rejoice, grace. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Death has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus, and this is free.